You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. I'm Brandon, filling in for Isha, and today we have Mal Hyman, a professor of sociology from Coker College, to talk about his book, Burying the Lead, The Media and the JFK Assassination. We also touch on the overlapping interests of the media, the CIA, and the American foreign policy establishment. And now the second and final part of our interview with Mal Hyman. I think the big insurmountable thing for everybody who's ever been interested in the Kennedy assassination, how to make sense of it all. There's so much stuff, and like you said, so many names (laughs) and so many moving parts that it's hard for casual observers to sort of get a read on just how it all comes together, sort of the sequence of events and kind of how the plot proceeds. Sure. Well, let me circle back to the Secret Service. This is called security stripping when people write about it in other countries. And I'll enumerate some of the things that the Secret Service didn't do. And then you could see where I'm headed with, look at the head of the Secret Service, uh, C. Douglas Dillon and all of his connections, and Earl Cabell setting up the motorcade route in Dallas. And he's a CIA asset, and his brother was fired by Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. So the motorcade route was redirected to include a turn of 120 degrees. I mean, the Secret Service manual explicitly prohibits anything like that. And there were no military that was not part of the plot offered assistance and it wasn't used. There was no coverage of open windows or manholes or sewers or coverage of roofs. The motorcade vehicles were in an atypical sequence. Nearby hospitals were put on alert status. The typical flatbed truck carrying the press and photographers riding in in front of the presidential limousine was canceled. Photographers were put far away from the presidential limousine in cars number nine and 11. A motorcade route was publicized the day before. The Dallas Police Department homicide detective car was removed from the motorcade. Secret Service Chief Rowley and others did not convey recent threats to the presidential advance team In Dallas, the overpass at Dealey Plaza was not cleared or properly protected. Security was inadequate during the parade route. Night agents of Kennedy's White House detail were drinking heavily at a nightclub until four in the morning. I mean, you think I'm making this stuff up. This has been there, but you have to be willing to keep an open mind, dig into the readings. Some books are excellent that will get people started much more quickly in looking at this. One of them is Brothers by David Talbot, which is an excellent book, and it's very readable. You also have one by a guy named James Douglas, and Douglas's book is JFK and the Unspeakable. Uh, He's a retired theologian looking at Kennedy's policies when it comes to nuclear weapons. And what now revisionists generally accept is the political epiphany after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy's fighting the military. I think those are good books. I've kind of given an outline. In my book, Burying the Lead, I look at how the media didn't do their job in looking at this. 
And what I try to do is synthesize the critical arguments so that it's readable to somebody who might be a junior in college, but also look at who did it as well as media coverage. All the interests that sort of align the branches of the military, business interests, that all makes sense to me, just sort of the confluence there. When did people get together in a room or how is this planned? How does someone plan? No one knows. And a lot of that won't be down on paper and we'll never know. I think the role of Johnson is critical in this. I think Johnson brought together Texas and the oil people and some of the military industrial complex. I think the other person that warrants a lot of consideration as being critical in this would be Alan Dulles. But of course, Johnson was connected to oil, banking, and and corporate America, and so was Dulles. But they were the operatives on the ground. With Johnson, his career was about to be destroyed by the Senate Judiciary Committee that was going to call in Johnson's top aide, Bobby Baker, for questioning. Well, Baker was the bag man. And they were going to convict Baker, and Johnson was going to look horrible and clearly be dropped from the ticket next time in in 1964 in the presidential race. And then they were going to come after Johnson. And Johnson, what was was he getting in trouble for? I'm, I'm not familiar with the investigation. Well, everything from cotton allotments to business deals, essentially the way the Senate majority leader would work is you want things done, money would be given. And Bobby Baker was doing all sorts of things. And actually, Robert Kennedy was probably, according to many sources, feeding the information to the Senate Judiciary Committee so that they would have information because they wanted to get rid of Johnson. Yeah, he really drag on the ticket, (laughs) but he was too anti-communist, too close to the oil industry, too close to military contractors, which he was. And I think Johnson had plenty of motive. And a lot of those ties in Texas are people that worked with Johnson in the past. Johnson was still the most powerful player uh, in Texas at the time and was the darling of the oil industry, the oil industry that Kennedy wanted to tax. He wanted to end the depletion allowance, which was the 27% tax break that the oil industry was given for finding oil. Kennedy was trying to end that and probably would have if he'd have been reelected in 64. He pissed off everybody at the same time then. Yeah, he actually was acting (laughs) kind of like, I mean, in some ways, like Roosevelt might have acted, going after the economic royalists trying to free up money for social programs. He wasn't going to end capitalism as a reformist. But even that was quite threatening, along with being somebody who was not sufficiently anti-communist. I mean, Kennedy was reaching out to Castro in 63 through a journalist named Gene Daniel. It's called a two-track policy formally making statements, but actually reaching out to see, could there be some sort of accommodation with Castro? Because I think Kennedy was starting to understand Latin American politics a lot better and realized that Castro was more an independent type and certainly wasn't a threat to the United States. Right. (laughs) 
That's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that about Kennedy. I, I learned a lot in this journey. And I'd say I, I borrowed from a number of people who spent longer hours in the archives with their books. And I just felt kind of honor bound to add what I could about the media. Because if the media would have covered this, if the media would grant me interviews the way you're granting me an interview, people would have asked different questions. The country would have entertained ideas like Sanders talking about years ago, because that's really where the Kennedys were headed. That's where King was headed. I thought it was a destiny betrayed. It makes me wonder now what lessons we can draw from this to, like, I guess, given today's political situation, especially those of us on the left, given that if Sanders were to get elected and try to do even a fraction of what he's proposed, I mean, even though it's a thoroughly moderate social democratic agenda, he's going to face a nuclear blast of hostility and just all out war from, I mean, everyone, (laughs) everybody who stands to have their power curbed at all, both parties, the military industrial complex the press? How does someone else succeed where Kennedy failed? I think we have to build a a broader movement and encourage a range of perspectives as respectfully as we can, because we're not strong enough until we we build a, a wider coalition to educate our people better. It's a war on all fronts, and we don't have a lot of resources, but I think we have not only truth, but uh, but the best interests of humanity on our side. And I think you always fight the powers that be, and uh, we make we make the best contribution that we can, taking as many risks as we can. And you know, I I agree with Martin Luther King that the truth crushed to earth will rise again, and I believe that. King was on the right track when he, he talked about a revolution of values, and we've got to find different ways to communicate our message to wider audiences. Why? It's why it's so valuable that you're doing uh, the podcast work that you're doing with Asia, and it's absolutely vital for a free society to become more democratic. And I think it's fair to say that almost all the change in this country comes when people organize and speak truth to power with love the best we can. Um, and, and I sometimes take it back to the founding fathers uh, condoned slavery, our original sin, and, and there was pushback to get a bill yeah. of rights and pushback to end slavery. And these are all citizen movements. And you know when we can break through to a wider group of people uh, that this is in their interest and in the interest of humanity and in the interest of the earth, uh, you know, we carry the day. And uh, we're, we're up against corporate interests that are powerfully situated in the media, as well as every aspect of our economy. And, uh, you know, we're fighting on the edges and, and we have to be more creative and keep the faith. Absolutely. Solidarity is really the only way forward. I mean, that it is <laughs> the only real engine of any kind of significant social change here or anywhere else. I heard an interview with Professor uh, George uh, Chicarello Mar a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how when Chavez first came to power in Venezuela, like when at the beginning, he was not 
not even all that left, not really. It was the colectivos and the, the farmers that pushed him further left. They radicalized him. And he was apparently thinking about moving beyond just kind of basic social democracy stuff before he died. That's how I understand it. And I'm now willing to be more, I think if you're in the political arena, you're not going to have much time to read. Unless you surround yourself with advisors that have read a lot, all of us are going to have gaps in our background that are going to be significant. Even if we're able to get the best of the progressives into elected office, we then have to work to educate them and protect them the best we can because they're going to be victims of character assassination, intimidation, lies, propaganda. I mean, what we're seeing with Fox is right out of Joseph Goebbels. Uh, it's not called out as such. And academics are afraid that, you know, that's a career ender. What I did, I couldn't get a PhD on. It's a different paradigm for looking at political science, but it needs to be said. And I think it's just saying that the king has no clothes. It's hard to get people to say it. I think, you know, it comes yeah. to cooperatives. There's not much written in the United States. So most, most aren't able to judge how powerful democratic socialism might be if you were to look at cooperatives like Mondragon in Spain or the cooperative alliances in Italy. That's um, right. Yeah. That, uh, Richard Wolff loves to talk about Mondragon. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's actually borrowed by corporate America because they know that it's powerful when you're able to get input from people. And, you know, it comes to climate change. I think progressives will have an idea. And then hopefully if they get into office, we've got someone like Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren in office. And then they would talk more to a Bill McGibbon. And all of a sudden they get up to speed on, on what's been said at the climate accords and they get the crash course. So I, I think we're all works in progress. I think we have to, to be sensitive to, what was it, Will Rogers. We're all ignorant just in different subjects, you know, <laughs> just to, to help each other out. I had one of my epiphanies while I was teaching in a state prison back in 77. I realized there was the fate of God, go I. And uh, I started to understand hopelessness better because inmates would tell me their story after we played pickup basketball games. And I'd realize, oh, my God, you know, this guy's talking from the heart. You know, we're alone. He's not doing this for any gain. I can't help him. And he's just kind of talking to somebody that played basketball with him. And they gave up at the age of 11, 12, and 13. Well, on the campaign trail, I tell that story because most people don't know it. I think we're, you know, to raise consciousness is, is tough. And to build coalitions is tough. And I'm reminded of Castro and King both saying the art of revolution is the art of coalition. You got to work with a number of different groups in order to get more powerful, you know? So I'm, I'm glad yeah, they we're, were both extremely and, pragmatic. They were, that's something I think that's, I think King still doesn't get enough recognition for. Right. And neither did Castro, who's far yeah. more pragmatic the first 10 years than he was subsequent to that. And it was only when I visited Cuba that I started to, to see more of the shades of gray with people. And what was done very effectively at the grassroots level broke down when you have one party in power too long. Some of these are, are evident to many of your listeners. So it was an epiphany to me hearing about some of these things when I visited Cuba. And then the second time I visited, I had different connections and 
saw different things the, the second time because it's not well understood what, what was going on there and what's going on there now. They're the threat of I, a good I totally example. agree. Yeah, and I think a lot of American progressives or American leftists, it's easy to sort of, I don't know, like a blinkered kind of idealist view of other socialist projects in other countries and say, well, you know, I think Cuba's socialist government should have been more decentralized or, I mean, like it just, it kind of, I don't know, like I was, I mean, that was me for a while. I was just totally ignorant of the history. It it was a while before I learned that, well, um, there's a reason that you consolidate power if you're a country under the thumb of imperialism. Because if you don't consolidate political power, you get assassinated. Right. And we tried to assassinate (laughs) Castro, CIA, nine times through the mob. And I don't think the Kennedys initiated that. I would bet the House that they did not initiate that. It wasn't their style anyplace else. Uh, They didn't know what to do with Cuba. But the response after the Cuban Missile Crisis was to reach out to Castro. They had top-level operatives that were reaching out to Castro. In fact, one of Kennedy's top operatives was talking with Che Guevara. Um, really? They wanted to figure out, yes, not my research, but yes, and it's been, wow. it's been confirmed because he just wanted to live in peace with them. I don't think he wanted to emulate them, but he didn't think they were a great threat, and he didn't want it to lead to a nuclear war. Why the mafia? Okay, the CIA had worked with the mafia to do the dirty work. They did it in the Italian elections. They did it during World War II, the precursor to the CIA, the OSS, for the invasion of Sicily. They worked with Lucky Luciano. It's standard CIA style because when an operation gets put in place, they have what's called plausible deniability. Make sure you have the cover story in place before you get started. If it fails, you blame it on the mafia. Perfect cover story on it. The mafia ran Havana. Like it was Las Vegas, the Las Vegas of the day. They had the casinos, they were uh, running prostitutes and drugs. They had the ties there at the highest level. So they were the operatives that could be used on the ground to get to Castro. Also, the, the deniability, if they couldn't, you know, it was the crazy mafia trying to get back in power in, in Cuba. That's why they used them. Gotcha. I mean, the CIA has always used proxies, but I just, I don't, I've always thought that like the mafia kind of makes for poor death squads. I mean, these, these guys shake down like local businesses for protection money. Like they're not, you know, like expert assassins, but the fact that if they control the local scene, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> range, you're quite right. A range of families, some are more small time hustlers. Some are much more sophisticated. Part of the the problem in Cuba was getting people on the ground that you could pay a certain amount of money that would do things and that you could control reliably. So probably Meyer Lansky's crowd was the one that they used. But you're right, different mob families. And many times they had their own foreign policies. And a lot of times they fought rather than cooperated. Right, yeah. It is kind of an (laughs) overarching term just as to say the CIA, there are a number of different factions. They work on a need to know basis. And certainly if some factions aligned with Dulles uh, and with James Angleton have, have certain policy agendas, doesn't mean that 
another two-fifths of the agency agrees with him or even knows what's happening. Yeah, evil and competent go, don't always go together. I, like, <laughs> I think a lot of people, like, I think it, it's easy sometimes for people to forget that, like, the CIA has frequently been evil and stupid. One time, didn't they try to um, dose Castro with something that would make his beard fall out? Right. right. And, and the, the end goal being what, exactly? <laughs> like yeah. what is he Samson his strength is going to fail people are going to yeah. desert him when he doesn't have a beard yeah sure. those, those efforts were <laughs> pathetic but then others were quite well coordinated and the CIA is still sitting on their files thousands of yeah. pages 55 years later if they've got nothing to hide you know so they're still able to cover it up so I think you have the whole gamut you have some operatives that are learning and mediocre and others that are polished and effective, and others that are they're quite well connected and dangerous. And yeah, they've, the whole they've definitely been scarily efficient at plenty of times. It's a weird mix. <laughs> you know, I think the same thing with the military. You know, low-level military intelligence. There's some guys that barely got a college degree and don't deserve to have it, and don't follow orders well, and and are are not very effective. And and then you also have guys with masters and PhDs that are doing counterinsurgency that are that are pretty effective. So I, th- I think it's the gamut and these agencies ebb and flow. And I think if we got a president and a Congress that was not beholden to money, we could have open debates and maybe start to rein in these agencies so that they operate in the public interest and the interest of working people around the world and the interest of the earth rather than the interest of those who have the most power. So I see it as possible. I think there's some democratic openings in the United States, but I, but I also think we're amusing ourselves to death here. Yeah, there's, I think when we're a, just a society that's been this kind of atomized and fragmented and frankly traumatized by capitalism, all like a lot of times, like all we really have the energy for at the end of the day is to just, you know, zone out or, take something to take our minds off it, whether it's entertainment or, you know, I mean, <laughs> or, or drugs or alcohol. Like it's all, I mean, we're all just kind of stuck in a position of self-medicating to cope. I think you're right. And we've never had so many distractions or such good writing for Netflix or the choice of libations or the choice of books. And I think once a movement gets started, you know, then people will have a sense of hope, like maybe we can change this. There might be a lot more kindred spirits. Elections tend to bring them out. Of course, elections are necessary, but they're not sufficient. You need a movement. And that's right. that's always harder to put together because you have a lot of losses before you finally get some wins. And it's tough work. And it's, it's not easy to take on the powers that be, uh, even if you're smart and committed. It's just a tough task. And it's a lot easier to self-medicate, as you say. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically 
www.substack.com. I've been really encouraged by the uh, the teacher strikes, among other things. It seems a lot of them have gotten a little bit of a taste of power, the power that that comes from uh, when we mass together. And I'm hoping that's only going to whet their appetite for more. I think it will. You know, I think some of the, the observations of democratic socialists years back, if you don't have democracy in the workplace, how do you learn it? Yeah. We can't teach bourgeois democracy in the schools, and it's ineffective even for protecting small businesses, you know, some you know, more reasonable form of capitalism, if there is such a thing. It can't even protect that. This is totally destructive crony capitalism that we have. So teaching for bourgeois capitalism in the public schools and in colleges is an abysmal failure. You have to learn it in the workplace. And John Dewey's line, I think, is correct. You also have to learn it in schools. Schools teach people to adjust themselves to hierarchy. And the future is theirs. They have to have some say-so in a classroom. And most teachers don't engage in honest dialogue on controversial issues. And then we make them teach the test and we don't train teachers and don't pay teachers. And so, I mean, there's a whole educational establishment that's been taken over by bureaucrats that don't ask the critical questions that would, that would liberate people. And we have a church that doesn't ask those questions other than, you know, some groups like Unitarians and liberation theologists, but they're few and far between. Absolutely. Yeah, I think particularly American Protestantism has largely been assimilated by capitalism. It's like going to Starbucks or something and ordering like a triple Jesus latte with uh, no whip every Sunday. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's going to be even worse because they'll have their missionary groups and they'll have yeah. their they'll have their food bank. And many of them are well-meaning, but they don't want to take any risk. So you end up without them asking the serious questions about why there is lingering poverty or people without medical care or why we're destroying the earth. Those are basic questions that could be part of a Christian dialogue, like the Christian Marxist dialogue in Latin America, but doesn't exist in the United States. And those questions aren't necessarily anti-Christ. I think it's fair to say, you know, what would Jesus say about this? He'd be pissed. I mean, not that I think he was anything more than a small Jewish prophet that that we have, you know, blown up and and bureaucratized, but but he was saying the right things. He would be appalled at all this. And I think this is true, incidentally, in the black community, where they're not asking those questions. Otherwise, they'd be leading the dialogue. If you have almost half of the black kids under the age of six living below the poverty line, what are the churches waiting for? 50%? 50%? I mean, come on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm willing to ask the question there, too. But also, if none of these institutions are asking questions of power that will allow people to have the insight to, to be more reasonable in how they live their lives and create society, then somebody has to step in, into the breach like you, like Isha, people running podcasts and doing independent media. And we fight the best we can in whatever form we can get. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, Christianity and like, really and, like any religion in general, it can be a creature of middle class. 
If it is, it's just going to breed more reaction. And I think the liberation theologians were absolutely right. And I've like I've I've made this joke before. I'm not entirely kidding when I say it though that the first century church were the uh, the first Marxist Leninists, <laughs> and that Ananias and Sapphira were the first Kulaks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's fair to say. And, you know, people who write about revolutions could and should include religious revolutions. And the bottom line is most of the revolutions end up having a party that stays in power and doesn't evolve into some sort of democracy at every level, that those with power tend to abuse it. And that's true with all of the institutionalized religions. Early movements were very liberating and democratic. Right. When Christianity was something practiced by oppressed people, it was a liberatory force. But once it was adopted and subsumed by people who were already comfortable, people who lived privileged existences, it's all downhill from there. It becomes a bourgeois ideology. Yep. You know, I, I come back in my you know, from the close with a call to action, I reinterpret the Pledge of Allegiance. Secular prayer. It's as close as you can get. And, and you can talk about the United States of America. You know, we're divided by the red states and the blue states. We want to be the United States. We're divided within political parties. And the Democratic Party never really went back and looked at what happened to Bernie Sanders during the primary. You know, and to protect a republic, you have to protect it from outside forces, and we need to continue this investigation. Or when the wealthiest 1% put 97% of the money into elections, the republic may be lost. I mean, you can work through all of the themes of a progressive agenda by using language that's uh, accessible to the general public. And I did it during my congressional campaigns, and it resonated with people. I mean, you do different examples, you know, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, I think most people understand that things are, are fundamentally unfair, or at least they're unhappy because they know on some level that life is harder than it ought to be. And it's possible to appeal to that. You can't logic people into coming around to your point of view, but you can speak to the material needs and circumstances. And most of us, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> in those circumstances. Exactly. Sanders' agenda, conservative businessmen in Canada have been there for 40 years. This is just the opening wedge on what's going on, but it's the most concerted effort that I've seen. I came of age in 68 when I started college and political assassinations and riots in 100 cities and divided on Vietnam. And I grew up in LA where I could see the air I was breathing. But there was no movement that you could join like a Sanders movement. And that'll no doubt split and, and it'll have rough debates. But it's at least, you know, a better outline of a movement that we could start to, to educate people and work in. So I think there's grounds for optimism there. Uh, I think there's grounds for pessimism with Fox News being so closely tied to a cult leader who is so destructive and borrowing propaganda techniques from Joseph Goebbels. I don't think the public is aware of that. So yeah, they're basically a white nationalist outlet now. Tucker Carlson is 
practically talking about race war. <laughs> it's, it's very close. They have tied themselves to Trump, the poster boy for the seven deadly sins. He's a sociopath. I tell people that it's good that I taught for five years in a medium security men's prison because it allowed me to understand political sociopaths. How so? The first thing that popped into my head was the power differential. Right. But it's the same strategies, which you have. I mean, Trump was, was like a lot of people that I met in prison. Damn good liar, very friendly, can, can shift gears quickly and, and then will hurt you any way he can. And saw a lot of people like that who'd run with gangs in prison and they could be the nicest guy. And some of them had reformed and some of them clearly hadn't. You wouldn't know. You have to look at them for a while to start to understand them. And some of the political operatives are very smooth. He has a cult following and they're inside the echo chamber. And we have not fought anything like this before. And this isn't going to end even when they nail Trump because they have to nail Trump. The the establishment has to nail him because he's bad for the establishment. That's why MSNBC has Jeremy Bash on, who is the chief counsel for the CIA and the Pentagon. He's the one that's actually the cleanup hitter on MSNBC. Yeah, MSNBC is uh, retired generals and CIA hours now. It's amazing. (laughs) Is there anybody left that gets screen time, like other than Maddow, who isn't former military? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think uh, the shows are, there are some differences and and, and I think they, they do a good job on some of this because the media has to hold their feet to the fire because it is the opening wedge for fascism. And I can say that at a Democratic gathering and they'll listen. They will listen, but nobody wants to hear it. It's about as depressing as climate change. So you can make your points, but they don't want to hear it. They will yeah. listen. They kind of know you're right. You know, they'll donate a little bit more money. I don't, I don't know what to say. We're up against a, a very different racist, sexist, populist force that's not going away. And all the more reason for us to be listening to, to widely varying sources and reaching out to, to build a broader coalition. At MSNBC, I think the reporting is good. It doesn't go far enough. And I think they are a conduit for establishment figures, mainly retired, who are afraid of Trump, afraid of what he's going to do on foreign policy, trade policy, and even stirring up the wrong elements in the United States. But I don't think that's their first concern. Trump's like a great sort of uh, fig leaf or someone to conveniently kind of offload the sins of the entire military, industrial, or security state apparatus. In some ways, he's been a boon to the establishment just because he's a convenient cover for them to hide behind. I think you know? they thought they could control him. Right. That's the, the rub. He's sundowning at 11 a.m. and it's impossible to get him to hold a single thought in his head. Like, he's got no object permanence. <laughs> he doesn't listen to people. I think there might be dyslexia. He doesn't read. And I have to think he's going to never know what he's going to come up with next. And some of it is thoughtful and interesting and reasonable and calculating. And some of it's just crass and some of it's stupid and dangerous. And they know they can't control him. 
I yeah. think some of the leaks coming out of there were coming from the military. I don't think Kelly was able to move to a position of power, but probably when crazy stuff was happening, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, they're leaking it like they did in, you know, Fire and Fury to some writer or to somebody else that's going to give it to a writer so that people know what's going on on the inside. Uh, but I think they, that now Trump understands the job better and his natural tendency is to be very independent. And his select circle is like Miller and Jared Kushner. And I mean, it's not people that really understand the world. Uh, they have an ideological view of it. And I think that's threatening to the establishment. I think as long as his administration is full of apparatchiks and security state figures, there's still going to be a large extent to which they can drive policy at a more granular level. I know it's maddening to them the way they can't stop Trump from just making a decision, like a, a snap decision. That's kind of the, the problem there, right? Like if somebody like Trump did want to execute some kind of independent agenda. And I got to say, like, I found it quietly terrifying when it came to the point where, quote unquote, the grownups in the room were the generals. <laughs> Mad Dog Mattis. Of course. You essentially got a soft military coup at that point. Correct. And I think that's what happened to Nixon, too, through Al Haig. Oh, God. That, that guy was a megalomaniac. <laughs> was also connected to Bob Woodward, Alexander Butterfield, Fred Buzzhart, all the people who were coming up with the information on Nixon that somehow got revealed. Those are military ties. The military felt that Nixon was a great threat. So did other elements of government, but the military did. They, they thought he was inexperienced, lying to him on China, the opening to China. They tried spying uh. on him, and they got caught. So, yeah, I get into that in my chapter on the military. But, yes, I, I do think what, what you expressed is, is right, how curious the grown-ups are the military. And I, I think they were there for damage control. And I, I don't think there's much damage control going on in the policy in Iran or the policy in North Korea or what's going on with the Paris Accords are threatening to the elites. They don't want those directions. They don't know where this trade war is going. Yeah, they're definitely not on the same page with him at all on, on the trade thing, which <laughs> is on a certain level, I find that amusing because I, it's, it's nice when capitalists fight. <laughs> mm -hmm. But like you'd mentioned before, there are always splits at a more micro level between groups of capitalists and imperialists, even if they all broadly subscribe to the same kind of larger agenda. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm not saying that that's, uh, you know, opening wedge for a reform movement or a democratic socialist movement. But there are some elements that can work with more easily than others. And I mean, there are some corporations that donate uh, to progressive leaders. They're few and far between. Um, I think we're probably going to have to come up with some network of cooperatives to show at a business level that democratic socialism is effective. And I think that will win over people in a dialogue in a different way rather than it just being theory that people will see that small d democracy 
can work in a classroom, that it can work in the workplace. And I think when people are standing up in those places, then they won't hesitate to stand up uh, in the public arena to speak out for things. I think yeah. that that's possible to build. Yeah, that'll absolutely. be where Sanders goes. Sanders has a, I think a, a bill, legislation that he's proposed on workplace democracy. So that I think it's a, that's a an interesting avenue for for change. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that, that's sort of one of the big opportunities I see in a Sanders presidency. Not that he's gonna, not that he's gonna eradicate capitalism, but that we would have someone in office who would not be actively hostile to left causes and who might even like open up a little space to make it easier for us to organize, for unions to form. Someone who would be amenable to left pressure in a way that other presidents haven't been. I completely agree with you. And, you know, having politically fought through an awful lot in, in my neck of the woods, you were, you were stuck with a dilemma. You can say everything you want and see it as educational, or you can try to get a seat at the table. And if you try to get a seat at the table, it's tougher. You have to do different things. And you have to work more broadly, especially in areas where there are precious few people that have a similar analysis of things. If you're not a candidate and you figure you're going to get there by being a professor, you're not going to get the invitations that you think anywhere else. You'll be able to speak in a classroom and get 10 invitations over the period of a year, and that'll be it. If you run for office, you get a chance to give three speeches a day, say different things. So, and then if you want to win, you got to figure a way to, to get there. Sanders figured a way to win. That's an awfully tough journey. And I think in his heart, he is, I mean, the fact that he still says he's a socialist leading a revolution, when it's clearly impolitic for him to say that, I think speaks to where his heart might be. Yeah, I've wondered a lot how much of the, I guess, the, the more radical, younger Bernie Sanders is still there. Well, I think it's there. I mean, the Workplace Democracy Act that he sponsored with, with uh, Senator Pocan of Wisconsin, you know, that's, <laughs> my goodness, that, that's uh, just trying to do it from the inside, trying to, to open up possibilities for it. Uh, I, I'll bet you if he got there, there'd be seed money. We'd be studying these things. We would, they'd be making their way into the textbooks. Now we're totally marginalized. There's nothing on workplace democracy in textbooks in political science, economics, or sociology, even for college students. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know that's something that Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky both hammered on about for decades now, just the way that they, the entire history of labor struggles in America has effectively been erased from in secondary education and, you know, the history that most of us uh, are exposed to. Even on Labor Day, we don't get a labor lawyer or a labor organizer on mainstream media to talk about the plight of workers. We never get a worker on minimum wage talking about what life is like, even on Labor Day. That's how marginalized we are. And no one knows what May Day is either. Nobody even knows about that here. I, nope. I saw pictures of Havana. The streets were full of just 
tons of people. They know what Mayday is. <laughs> yeah. And you read through Castro's old speeches, and they're remarkable. You know, that shouldn't be lost to American history, but a lot of it is, and as is the, the whole Cuban experiment in trying to be independent. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, an interesting an interesting experiment that's still evolving. And there's a reason to, there's no crime. You can go to Havana, enjoy good music and a good meal, $6, and, and walk home at night, 1 o'clock at night, and it's safe. I mean, that's and fantastic healthcare. Abs. Oh my goodness! Had the doctor who is an eye surgeon. She was in her fifties. Talk about how great it was that she was able to serve her country by working as an eye surgeon in Paraguay, rural Paraguay, and that's why the Cubans are liked throughout Latin America. They send their doctors out, and. She was going on about how much the victory of the revolution has meant to her family. I mean, this was in 2015. She's talking about this to me, using the language of the victory of the revolution. Didn't have to. She's a doctor, doesn't own a car, and is happy with their system. No, I think it was revealing, very humbling. Um, yeah. You know, doing a lot of things right. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's a lot we well, can learn from projects throughout the, the global south uh, of the left. I think like we don't need to, it's not just a matter of us getting outside of our own heads and you know, learning a little bit about other people, but it's also like something that can give us a little bit of hope. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like others have gone before us and shown the way. <laughs> absolutely. You're right. Cuban example, back when I visited 2008, a woman in her 70s was a block organizer, voted in that position. She controlled a six-block area. That was her responsibility to report to a level below the city council. And, you know, they'd make sure students got to school and that people who were drunk on the streets would be taken care of. And uh, young men from the area would take their turns walking in the neighborhood with the police at night so that everybody was part of that watch. And asked her, how many people in your group? She said, about 200. How often do you meet? About once a week. Well, how many people come to the meetings? About 100 once a week. Wow. We don't have that in most of the United States. So at the grassroots yeah. level, people believe in the system. They're working to try to keep their communities in better shape. And there's some of this structure in recreating a society can be borrowed by the United States and the rest of the world. And it doesn't get much talked about or written about. So I agree with you. There are a lot of good examples out there. And I got to tell you, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Maybe next time we'll talk more about workplace democracy. That'd be fantastic. Thanks for being so generous with your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Would you let um, the listeners know the name of your book again and also where we can find you on social media? Sure. Burying the Lead, The Media and the JFK Assassination, Mal Hyman, it's Trine Day, and it's on Amazon. I mean, so you can 
you can order it there too. And uh, as people read it, uh, I'd love to get feedback and people can find me at Coker College in Hartsville, South Carolina. Uh, look forward to continuing the dialogue. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Take care. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.